Welcome to another episode of Bereans Podcast. Each week we share a message from the Bible and examine it to understand and learn to apply it to our lives. The hope is that through the wisdom of the scriptures, we will all be encouraged to make real life change and that the power of the gospel will transform our lives. Thanks for listening and enjoy this episode of the Berean Podcast that starts right now. Good morning, everyone. My name is Devin. I'm the lead pastor here at Berean. It's an honor and a joy to be with you as always. I'm excited today to start off a new study. And anytime we're doing a study like this, where we're taking 60 weeks to walk through a gospel, there's a lot of work that needs to be done on the front end. And so I kind of debated if I should just fully embrace the professor mode and get like a tweed jacket with some leather patches, grow out some curly hair, and grab a pipe. But I realized that I can't grow my hair that quickly, so I didn't. But I want to talk today about Jesus. Jesus is, without a doubt, the most influential person that has ever lived. Even today, we are here 2,000 years after he lived, after he ministered, after he was crucified and raised, and we're still talking about him. And today, depending on the time zone around the world, millions upon millions of people will gather in his name. And there are a billion people, billions of people in the world today who would claim to be followers of Jesus. He has influenced everything from economics to prison reform from literature to our modern views on the individual and the significance of personal freedom. He has transformed the world. Even in pop culture, he's referenced in everything from South Park to Downton Abbey. I just wanted to go real broad with my audience, (laughs) right? Just make sure that you feel included here today. He has so influenced story that even if you don't have a literary criticism background, you instinctively know what a Christ figure is. He has transformed this world. There has never been anyone who lived who has had the impact of Jesus. The question then is this. Who was he? Who is he? I mean, truthfully and honestly, there are innumerable opinions out there about Jesus. Now, let's get one thing straight on the front end here. Because sometimes if you poke around on the internet or you talk to somebody who hasn't really studied this, you'll get a response or you'll get an argument that goes like this. Jesus 
never even existed. Okay, let's talk about that for a moment. The fact that Jesus existed, his historicity, the truth of who he is, that he did actually live, is beyond reasonable doubt, okay? There is no professor at a reputable university in North America who would argue that Jesus didn't exist. And I'm not talking here about pious, religious, you know, devoted Christian scholars. I'm talking about people who don't believe. I'm talking about agnostic and atheists who study history would all agree that Jesus existed. That is beyond a doubt. Now, you may grant that he existed, but maybe you don't yet hold that he was truly divine, that he did these things that the Bible says that he did, that he healed, that he walked on the water. Maybe this for you is simply too much. Who is Jesus? That's the question. You see, for Mormons... Jesus was the spirit child and, and half-brother of Lucifer. For Jehovah Witnesses, he was created by Jehovah as the archangel Michael before the material world existed. And he is a lesser, though mighty God. For many Jews, Jesus was an imposter, a man whose very name must be blotted out, a lewd apostate. For Muslims, he was a messenger of God. Did you know that Jesus is mentioned 25 times in the Quran, which is more than Muhammad is even mentioned? But they would believe that, yes, he was a prophet. Yes, he was born of a virgin, but he is in no way God in the flesh. That would be blasphemous to them. In the Druze faith, he was a prophet for a specific period of time, but he was in no way divine. In the Baha'i faith, Jesus was one of many manifestations of God. He was a moral teacher. For many Hindus, he was an avatar, the reincarnation possibly of Elisha from the Old Testament. And for many today, the opinions and perspectives on Jesus abound. Some would say he is a man who just taught some great truth. Some would say he is a reformer. He was a a devoted Jew whose teachings were twisted and corrupted by the early Christians. Some would say that he is a revolutionary who was crucified for standing up to empire and Rome. He is a noble political figure. Some would say he is a prophet. Maybe somebody who who had a spark of the divine and had a connection with a higher power and so inspired humanity on. Some would say that he is simply an imposter, a fake, a liar, a charlatan, or mentally unstable. But truthfully, for most in our world today, he's somebody that we haven't really given a lot of thought to. Many people that I meet here and there, and as I get to know them and their faith story, find out that Jesus is just something that they haven't really spent a lot of time thinking about. They are not passionately for him, and they're not passionately against him. He's almost irrelevant to them. And all the busyness and the hecticness, the chaos, all the pleasures and pursuits that are out there, Jesus is someone that they haven't really spent the time investigating. But the reality is that for those of us who are Christians, who follow the Bible, and who know Jesus... 
Jesus is everything. I think of the Apostle Paul who said, for me to live is Christ. Everything in me is wrapped up in him. And how could it not be? You see, biblical Christianity teaches that he is not just a teacher or a prophet or Lucifer's half-brother or anything like that, that he is instead God come in the flesh to rescue and redeem. That he accomplished that through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. That this Jesus is not someone to be trifled with, someone to be taken lightly, that he offers you forgiveness and hope even now. Opinions about Jesus are endless. And so how are you going to sort through all the noise that's out there when it comes to Jesus? Because realistically, let's be honest, if he is who he said he is, if he's done the things that he's claimed to do, if all of this is true, then there is nothing in heaven or on earth that is more important than this. Then there is nothing that matters more than wrestling with the claims of Jesus because he holds your future in his hands. He holds heaven and hell. There is nothing that matters more than this. And so today, starting off on this series in Mark, we're going to take the next 60 weeks to come face to face with Jesus. Keep in mind, I reserve the right to extend this series to 61 or cut it back to 59. Because I know there's going to be somebody who counts and who takes a table and says, you, you combine those two passages or you split that one up. So I'm going to reserve that creative uh, license. I'll just claim it was the prompting of the Spirit and go from there. Now, obviously, this sermon is going to be a little bit different because there's a lot of background information. And I think it's important that as we live in a skeptical, critical world that we have good, robust, significant understanding of why we believe what we do. Faith is believing what we have good cause to believe. Faith is not simply turning off our minds, closing our eyes, you know, putting your, your head, forehead on a bat and you spin around in circles and then just launch off in a direction. That's oftentimes how faith is presented. Blind faith, just have faith. No, faith is believing what we have good cause to believe. And because that's so, it's important that we recognize that we have good cause to trust God and his word. Charles Spurgeon once said, when it comes to scripture, a scripture is like a, a lion. You don't defend a lion, you let it loose. And I agree with that so deeply. And so internally, I feel a bit of a tension with teaching and preaching. And I just finished Habakkuk. So don't come and say that I'm not a Bible guy. We're a Bible church. We're going to keep preaching the Bible. This is just kind of a setup where I want to explore some, some aspects of understanding that I think will help you as we move forward in this study. Because whenever we study something like the gospel, it naturally raises a number of questions. And I have eight questions. You can use your, your little journals to fill this out. You can just kind of sit along and participate, whatever, um, whatever you need to do. But here's the first question that I think comes up when we study something like the Gospel of Mark. What is a gospel? 
What is the gospel? In the Bible, we have four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. And you're saying, Devin, why are you throwing all these theological terms at me? Because I want you to be equipped and prepared for the next time you play Scrabble, that you will win and come out victoriously with triple word points. No, this is a common term, synoptics, and it's taken from two two Greek words, soon meaning together, and optic to see, think of the optics of something. So these three, Matthew, Mark, Luke, are often viewed together. They overlap. They have a lot of of similarities in style. John has a different perspective and, and adds different kind of elements. There are four biblical gospels, but they are crystal clear. There is one gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. So very simply, the gospels are biographies of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Ah, Devin, you say. I saw this great documentary once. It was called The Da Vinci Code. And what about all those other Gospels? What about the Gnostic Gospels? What about the Gospel of Thomas or Mary Magdalene? What, what about all those parts of the Christian story that were suppressed? Because didn't an emperor in the 4th century get together and gather up all the documents that didn't agree with him? And then he, he threw them away. So what we have is a very narrow slice of the diversity of the early Christian movement. How do I know that, that the church didn't suppress these other views? And Well... The answer to all of that is no. Let's explain. It is true that there are false Gospels, often called the Gnostic Gospels. They have not disappeared. You can go and read them. You can Google them and see what's inside of them. Why weren't they included? Well, if you want to see why they weren't included, go and read one of them. Okay. Now, they have issues regarding their composition. Who wrote this and where did it come from? Very different than the New Testament Gospels, which have a legacy. They have historical witness. They are tied to an apostle and so forth. We can get into that. But these so-called Gnostic or false Gospels don't read anything like the real Gospels. The real Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are concerned with history, people, places, events, details. These other Gospels that were so-called suppressed by the church are more often than not just random secret sayings of Jesus. So imagine somebody in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th century who's trying to start a movement. What better thing for them to do than to get there and say, oh, um, yeah, well, when Jesus was around and on earth, he, he taught all this secret stuff, and he didn't tell anybody. Uh, He didn't tell Matthew, he didn't tell, you know, Peter, James, and John, his closest friends, and those who knew him best, but he gave his secret teachings to a few of us, and we have preserved them ever since then. Isn't that convenient? So when you go and you explore these Gnostic Gospels, you will see that they don't read anything like a biography or a biblical Gospel. They're not concerned with details or history about what really happened. It's a secret kind of esoteric, ethereal, Gnostic teachings. A biblical gospel is concerned with history. Jesus went here, met these people, did these things. 
That's what a gospel is. So then the question that I think comes next is, where did it come from? I mean, you think about it. This is incredible. We're basing our lives on the truth of God's word, right? Where did we get this from? We live in a unique time in history where we have the ability to walk around with 66 books, one book together in our hands. Where did this come from? I mean, this is a, a fantastic topic to study in depth, maybe in a Sunday school or ABF or something like that. But taking the Gospels, for instance, where did Mark come from? Well, our New Testament is written in Greek. And they would have been written, the books of the New Testament would have been written, and they were sent to churches to encourage them, to teach them, and to train them. So when someone like Mark would write his Gospel... And he would send it out to a church somewhere in the region, and we'll unpack all of this. They would have received it with some significant amount of authority. This was important information. And so these books would have been prized, protected, even venerated in some way. This was significant. They didn't just get this huge book. I mean, writing was expensive and time-consuming in the ancient world. They wouldn't get this letter and say, okay, I finished it, let's toss it. No, this had the apostolic stamp of approval on it. They were going to protect this. But Devin, wasn't it really like a situation where you had a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy made, and how could we ever know what was in the original? It's been so corrupted over history. How do we know that what we have is truly what the the disciples and the apostles wrote? Well, that makes sense only if, when a copy was made, they took the original and burned it up. Do you think they would have done that? No, more than likely no. So a copy would have been made, And that original would have been prized and protected. There is evidence in the ancient world of libraries, of of works of literature even, enduring for two, three, four, even 500 years. These were books that were valued and protected. And so take, for instance, something like the Gospel of Mark. It would have been sent to a community, a church people would have began to have made copies. And if at any point, somewhere down the line of a copy of a copy, somebody was like, I'm going to spice this up a little bit because Jesus needs a makeover. I'm going to get him a, he's going to ride a Harley and uh, he's going to be, he's going to be 22 feet tall and he's going to shoot bolts of lightning like the emperor from Star Wars. Um, And we're going to add that in. If somebody did that, the early church would have had more than enough evidence at their disposal, to go and actually look if that was in the original. So this idea of an original, of an original, of an original, simply doesn't make sense if you think about the way that books and libraries worked in the ancient world. Now, let's talk about the actual manuscript evidence. I told you, I was going professor mode here today, I told you. So this is, an, uh, um, this is Papyrus 137. I'm going to put this on the screen. You can Google this. You can Google Papyrus, not Papaya, Papyrus 137, or you can Google P137 with, with attached mark to it. This is a fragment of the Gospel of Mark that was found. This is probably um, the earliest manuscript evidence that we have um, still existing. 
This is recto verso, front, back. This is one document, but you see both sides of it. And this is a section of the Gospel of Mark. Now, even if all the textual evidence that we have, and there are thousands upon thousands of fragments and books of the Bible, like the, the textual evidence is overwhelming. But even if all these Greek texts and then a little bit later Latin texts of the Bible, early copies were burned up and disappeared magically, we still have thousands upon thousands and thousands of quotations from the Bible in the early church fathers. So all these early church individuals, these pastors and theologians and leaders, they wrote books and they wrote sermons and they wrote personal letters. And in those, they quote over and over and over the New Testament, all of Scripture actually. So when you look at those, you look at the textual evidence, you think about the early world, the long and short of it is there is good reason to believe that what we have here is what Mark wrote. Again, this is all speaking historically. Christians believe that beyond this historical reality, there was the supernatural work of the Spirit to inspire. But this is just strictly from history. This um, little manuscript that I had up just a moment ago came from, is dated probably to the late 100s, um, uh, sometime around there. So then, who wrote it? Well, nobody's name is attributed or in the text itself, but one early church bishop said that, that the author of the Gospel of Mark was a man by the name, hold on, of Mark. And so, I just, I don't want to be fact-checked. i got to get this stuff right. So, one bishop in the early church said, you know what, very, very early, said that Mark served as Peter's interpreter. That Mark got together with Peter under the inspiration of the Spirit and got the details of Jesus' life and work. Mark, John Mark, is mentioned a number of times in the Bible. He's mentioned in Colossians, in Acts, in uh, Philemon, and in Second Timothy. So he's mentioned in there, and the early church consistently points to Mark as being the author of the gospel that now bears his name. When? When was it written? Well, the gospel of Mark was written early. Now, the relationship of Matthew to Mark to Luke and to John, how the Gospels related to each other, did, did Matthew seem to have a copy of Mark when he wrote? We don't really know, but it is, without exaggeration, the most debated literary question of all of human history is the relationship with the Gospels. There has been thousands upon thousands of books written on how these relate, different theories and so forth. But the majority would agree that Mark is perhaps the earliest gospel written sometime around 60 AD. And it covers the life and ministry of Jesus. Jesus himself lived under the reign of Tiberius, who was the second Roman emperor. Caesar Augustus was the first. He adopted a son named Tiberius. And Tiberius took over. And so it was under Tiberius that Jesus lived, was crucified, and was resurrected. 
Okay, what's it about? One of the unique realities of a post-Christian kind of world is that we have the opportunity to interact with people who know very, very little about all of this. So what's in the gospel of Mark? Kind of a a high level. I'm going to put an outline up on the screen here for you. So he starts off with a powerful, punchy intro, showing that Jesus is the one that we have been waiting for, that he has been predicted and promised. And then we see his ministry in Galilee. Here we see that he is baptized, tempted, calls his disciples, heals and teaches, and conflict begins to brew. And then we see this section here of transition, that suffering and glory are going to be a part of Jesus's future. He predicts his death. We see the transfiguration happen. He teaches some more. He heals some more. And then he transitions and he comes to Jerusalem. We see the triumphal entry. We'll talk about that. He cleanses the temple. And then he is crucified and raised in the last section here. He's anointed, institutes the Lord's Supper. He is betrayed, crucified, and the account of Mark ends with the empty tomb. So that's the outline. And like I said, there are four biblical gospels, but if you just simply read them, you will see that there is one gospel. There is one message of hope. There is one consuming passion that drives all of these authors is to show their hearers and us today that this is no ordinary man, that this is the Son of God come to rescue and to save. Who was it written to? Right? This wasn't like, uh, you know, people in the Twitter sphere where you just launch it off into the oblivion and just hope some bots end up retweeting it. Is it still called the Twitter sphere if it's now X? Somebody send me an email on that one. So who was it written to? Why was it written? Well, again, a number of early church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, Irenaeus, and, and others say that this letter, this gospel that Mark wrote, was written to the Christians in Rome. So as the church spread, there were pockets, significant pockets around the world, and they would communicate, and they would share letters, and they would share resources and financially support one another. They would pray for one another. We see that all throughout the New Testament. But this particular book, more than likely, was written to the Christians in Rome. And and scholars have a number of arguments for this, and you can see certain times that Mark will explain things that maybe a Roman audience wouldn't quite get or times that he is especially um, honoring to Roman citizens or officials in the text, just kind of, you know, uh, bolstering them up and, and so forth. But what this means is that the church, when they received the Gospel of Mark, could have already have had the book of Romans in their hand, right? And that has a host of implications for the theology of of Mark as well. Okay, I told you we're going professor mode. I'm just, I'm scared to look out in case people are sleeping, but this stuff is important, that you need to know that we have good reason to trust. And some of you are like, I love this. And some of you are like, just tell me three ways to improve my communications at work. And we'll, we'll cover all of it, okay? <laughs> How is Mark different than the other Gospels? Well, obviously, he is 
unequivocally on the same mission, to show people the good news of Jesus Christ. But long and short, Mark is the shortest. Mark is the shortest gospel, and he has this writing style that translates into English, that you can see it as you read English, that he is a man of action. The story is constantly, and immediately Jesus did this, and then immediately he went up from there and did this, and then he immediately went here. It is fast-paced, and that comes out even in the English. He is concerned with who Jesus is, why he's come, and what he has accomplished. So my final question for you is this. In light of all of that, how does it start, and why does this matter for you? Like they say in journalism, don't bury the the lead, the headline. That's what they say in Canada. Anyway, don't bury the lead. Right? you, you got to have that front and center. And Mark does the exact same thing here. He doesn't want his audience to, not, to miss what he's talking about. And God, by his spirit, doesn't want you to miss what the gospel of Mark is all about. So he begins with these powerful, dense, and punchy words from Mark 1, verse 1. Now, I'm going to invite you to stand as we read this single verse, and I'm going to invite you to read it aloud with me. And I I mean that because it usually takes a few words until people have the confidence to be like, okay, they really are. I didn't mishear that. But let's read this together because this, although it is short, is God's word for us today. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is God's word. Thanks be to him. Go ahead and grab a seat. In our time remaining, I want to walk through this statement. Because Mark doesn't want his audience to miss the significance. This is not just a life uh, hack. This is not a, a way to improve your life by 50%. This is transforming for you and I. It was transforming for his original audience. And the same holds true today. The beginning. This is the beginning. Mark here is using the Greek word borrowed from Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God brought life out of nothing. And here in Christ, he's doing the same. In Jesus, new life will come. This is the beginning of the gospel. So what does gospel mean then? This is the dawning of a new era. This is the beginning of a, of a work of almost new creation. The beginning of the gospel. You see, we call the gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John, gospels because they focus on the gospel. There are four gospels, but there is one gospel. And this term, this word in Greek is not a unique Christian word. Euangelion. It simply means good news or glad tidings. So let's, for example, uh, the emperor has had a son. His line is secure. Oh, it's good news. It's gospel. Oh, the general has conquered new territory for Rome. Taxation will increase. New trade routes will be opened up. The military has conquered yet again. This is gospel. This is good news. This is fantastic. And Christians came and they said, listen, Rome, 
You're talking about good news here and good news there. Let us tell you about the good news, the greatest news that we could ever hear. And it's not about some false son of God like Caesar. He claimed to be son of God. It's about the true son of God come down. This gospel is the good news. And this gospel pertains to Jesus. Jesus in Hebrew would be Joshua, and it means God is salvation. It was a common name in his day. There are other people in the Bible named Jesus. And in the ancient world, they just didn't seem to be very creative with names. In fact, I looked on Thursday at the MLB.com roster list of all past and present players. And according to MLB.com, there are 148 players, either past or present, in Major League Baseball with the first name Jesus. So it's a common name. It means simply God is salvation. In the ancient world, if you were trying to find Jesus, you know, before he got popular, and you were like, hey, do you know Jesus? The guy would be like, you got to give me more than that. I know like 30 of them. He'd say, do you know Jesus of Nazareth, where he's from? And he could say, yeah, you know what's funny? I know three of them. There was this whole baby top names thing that came out back then, and there's three of them. You would say, do you know Jesus, Ben Joseph, son of Joseph? Oh, I do. Actually, I know two of them. Okay, you would say, do you know Jesus, Ben Joseph of Nazareth, the carpenter? Right? And you get into occupation. And there wasn't that many people in the ancient world. Right? Their, their population wasn't anything like it was today. And so through those means, they could locate. But Jesus was not a unique or a common name. So this gospel pertains to Jesus. Well, who is he? Look at the next word. He is the Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Again, if you didn't grow up around church, maybe that's what you think. Totally understandable, because we always see them together. Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name. It is his title. It means anointed one or Messiah. It is the one that has been promised and longed for, even prayed for by the nation of Israel. The one who, according to Isaiah 53, and the suffering servant would come and would, would bring about all of God's promises. This is everything to the Jewish mind in Jesus' day. You see, we sit there and we say, did Jesus really claim to be divine? Like, yeah, of course he did. We can talk about that. But in the early, in, in Jesus' day and age, the number one question that was on the lips of everyone, that was on the minds of everyone, was not Jesus, are you the Son of God? But Jesus, are you the Messiah? That was their central thing that they were wrestling through because they had been waiting for this for so long. And Jesus is the Christ. And this Christ is, in fact, the Son of God. Christians believe the Bible teaches unequivocally clear that Jesus Christ is not merely a person who had some spiritual ideas or authority, but that he was God come in the flesh. And that somehow this story, this gospel that drives us to the cross, where the central figure of the gospel is crucified, is good news. 
How is this all good news? Well, to understand why this is good news, you need to know the bad news. You need to know the truth. Because this did not occur in a vacuum. It comes after thousands of years of God's work in human history called the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, we see where all the problems came from. God creates in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. He creates everything perfect. He places man and woman in the garden and he tells them specifically, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And they, and don't get too mad at them because you and I would do the same, think they know better. They are tempted, they are tested, and they fall and they falter and they take of that fruit. God told them, the day you take of it, you will die. But what happens? They don't actually die. Well, sure, they die spiritually, and that's true. That's significant, absolutely. But they don't die physically. But there's still a death that day. What's the first death in the Bible? Don't answer it out loud. I don't want to embarrass you. More often than not, people would say, oh, Cain and Abel. And human death is correct. But in Genesis 3.21, we see where man and woman, Adam and Eve, have hid themselves. They are ashamed of their sin and their nakedness. And they go and they sew together fig leaves to cover themselves up, and it's not enough. God comes to them, And even there in his judgment, he provides them animal skin clothing. What has happened here? I thought God said death was going to come. Well, death has come. But God in his grace allowed a substitute to take their place. And this idea, this concept continues on throughout the Old Testament. God initiates and gives his people a sacrificial system. You say, oh my goodness, God, why all this blood? Why all these animals? Why all this seriousness with sin? It's not that big of a deal. Well, it is. Sin is cosmic treason. It is us cutting ourselves off from the one who gives life. If you and I do that, what can we hope for apart from death? That's why sin leads to death, because it's leading us in the opposite direction of the author of life. So all throughout the Old Testament, God says, you can come, you can worship, but for me as a holy, glorious, perfect being to be in relationship with you, sinful, broken, rebellious humanity, we need a substitute to pay for the price of your rebellion and your treason against me. And so he allows them to sacrifice animals in their stead, every single time acting as a substitute But they had to do it year over year, over year over year. And when would you ever really know that that's, how would you ever really know that that sacrifice was good enough? All you could do is just trust God and and, and hope that it worked out. How could you ever have rest that you've sacrificed enough? When would God send a sacrifice or a substitute that would simply put an end to all of this? Can you imagine what a glorious day that would be? And then we open our New Testament and what do we see? This is why Jesus has come. This is why he's come. He's going to step into human history and not only be our representative, but be our substitute. That there on the cross, he took our sin. 
upon himself, paid for it in full, and was raised from the dead. That's why this is good news. Because what you and I could never do, he did for us. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And my hope and my prayer is that wherever you're at in the journey, that you will stick with it. Not all 60. We're not going to give you an award if you make it to all 60 or a little plaque or something. You get reserved seating for Sundays, but that's about it. But make an effort. If Jesus is who he says he is, this is far too important to put off or postpone. If he truly does hold heaven and hell in his hands, and your eternity is at stake with what you do with him and how you respond to him, then you need to take some time. Maybe maybe this is brand new to you, and if so, you have picked the perfect time to start coming out to church. But maybe you're here and you're an old faithful, and you love Jesus, you follow him, you are trusting in him for salvation. My hope and my prayer is that you will see him with fresh eyes and with amazement and wonder and worship grow deeper in him. This is the beginning of the series on Mark. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let me pray. Father, I thank you that we have good cause to have faith in you. I thank you, God, that you have given us your word to guide us and lead us, and that it didn't simply fall off of a mountain somewhere, that we're not trusting one person's opinion, but we can see here throughout history the way that you have preserved your word. I thank you for that. May we have faith and believe what we have good cause to believe. Lord, we love you. We praise you and ask that you would help us to see the profound and life-changing implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ, your son. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. And that does it for this episode of the Berean Podcast. All of our ministries at Berean are geared towards the mission of seeing lives transformed by the power of the gospel. If you would like to be connected with our church family or give to the mission of Berean, just jump online to our website at bereanmn.com. Thanks for listening today, and we pray that you are encouraged by today's episode. Be sure to like us on social media, and we'll see you here next time on the Berean Podcast.